0: It's such a great blessing to be together today. And I'm very thankful that you are here. If you're uh, visiting for this meeting, I want to join with uh, the brothers and sisters here in extending a special welcome to you and say that we're glad you're able to be with us to share the service today and hopefully to share the week together. Personally, I'm very thankful to the leadership here for the invitation to come and be a part of this work for this week. It has been my endeavor and prayer that the things we study together this week will achieve the purposes that you have at hand and that we will glorify God together in this labor. Proverbs is a favorite book among a lot of devoted Bible students. Many people have found great value in equaling their reading of Proverbs with a reading of the New Testament. There's just so much wisdom and so much value in its pages and in its phrases. And we're going to join together today and this week in a study of the book of Proverbs. Today's studies will focus on an introduction to the book. Uh, We'll spend just a little bit of time on just some academic things about the book, but I won't spend a lot of time on that because we're looking for practical value and practical instruction. And hopefully some of the academic pursuits uh, that we have in the introductory part of this study will point us in the direction of pursuing practical instruction and will help us in our quest of applicable truth. The book of Proverbs, Wisdom for Life. Proverbs is divided by the scholars in uh, five different books, and that is readily observable in the way the different chapters are introduced. You read at the beginning of chapter 1 something that introduces what sounds like a, a certain book, and then you go to chapter 10, and again you have an introduction that sounds like an additional book. And so throughout, till you get towards the end, the last two chapters are each represented as an additional book. Some of the old manuscripts will introduce or label, for example, chapter 10 through 24 as the second book of Proverbs. And this has to do with the way the book was compiled. We generally think of Proverbs as being written by King Solomon, because the book is titled The Proverbs of Solomon. And I believe that to be the case, though there are some uh, reputable points of view that suggest that some of the later chapters are wisdom that was added by later kings of Israel or men of Israel under God's direction. Let's look briefly at this idea uh, Romans 3, the first two verses, gives us insight into the role that God's people played in the, uh, the old dispensations of collecting inspired writings. Romans 3, the first two verses, says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. In a kind of a doctrinal discussion of how we're justified by faith, he poses the question, what's the advantage of being a part of the nation of Israel? You know, if it's all about being justified by faith in the Abrahamic system and trusting the promise of God, what's the advantage of being an Israelite and having Moses' law and all those things? And he says, well, part of the advantage is you've got the oracles of God. And this reveals to us that God committed the keeping of his oracles or his word to that nation. Now, as I understand this passage, and I would challenge you to consider this, this indicates to me that God's providential care and direction over Israel as they collected and maintained the books that became what we think of as the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, inclusive not only of the books of the law, but of the prophets and of the poetry, such as the book of Proverbs. And so when I look at a collection in chapter 1 through 9, and then an additional collection in chapter 10 through 24, and so on throughout the book, and I see these five books assembled into one, my faith in Romans chapter 3, as Scripture is, is inspired by the Spirit, tells me, okay, the Holy Spirit's saying God entrusted the collection of these writings like this to His children. So when we come in here and find uh, men of King Hezekiah collecting these sayings and saying, all right, this is part of the stuff that Solomon taught, then I believe that. And so there's an element of information there that says we can safely rest our trust in the book of Proverbs as a book from God. Look, there are a lot of ancient writings that have a lot of worthwhile thoughts and interesting wisdom and things like that. But Proverbs is more than that. And I believe we'll see in the course of our study today and throughout the week, but especially this morning and this afternoon, not only are the teachings in Proverbs special and unique above other things that are regarded as wisdom or wise sayings, but Proverbs in what it teaches shows us a hint of Christ. And that's where it rises above all other ancient wisdom. Let's keep looking now. Book 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. That's Proverbs 1 in verse 1. So this introduces us to the idea that that these things were written by David's son, king of Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 4, in giving more or less a summary statement of Solomon's exploits as a king, he said that he spoke 3,000 Proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Now I'm not aware of any effort to reconcile the number of 3000 proverbs with the number of sayings in the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes and then in the, the Song of Solomon what's regarded as Solomon's writings in the Old Testament. I don't know of any effort to reconcile that number nor do I think that 1 Kings chapter 4 is saying we have all of these. He's just giving a number of the things that that Solomon wrote that people drew from, these scribes operating under God's providential direction, drew from as they collected this inspired book, the book of Proverbs. And so you go to book two, or what some manuscripts refer to as the second book of Proverbs. He said the Proverbs of Solomon. And then he goes in and begins talking about... what, what is said there about the family relations and the son and the father. And then book three commences in chapter 25. These are the proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. So apparently, chapter 25 through 29 are things that much later than Solomon, under King Hezekiah, one of the more godly kings of God's people in the Old Testament ages, <laughs> King Hezekiah had his scribes His men collect these things and and make them a part of the book that we come to know as the book of Proverbs. From that point forward, there's considerable question as to whether or not Solomon was the actual author of these last two books or chapters of Proverbs. I believe that he was. I'll show you why. Feel free to draw what conclusion you want to draw. Proverbs 30 and verse 1, the words of Agur, the son of Jacah his utterance, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. Well, who, who are these people? That's the first question we ask. If you're trying to make a decision about authorship that's a biblically sound decision, I'm going to look those names up and have fun looking them up. We're not going to learn a lot. You know, in other verses about these fellows, the way you can sometimes when a name or a place is mentioned, you can look that up and find it <coughs> in other books and find a little bit of light on the subject. Not so here. The word "agur" means gathered and is thought to be a fanciful name for Solomon. There are a lot of people that, that a lot of scholars that analyze this and have that idea that that's just another way of saying Solomon sort of in a poetic way. Jacket comes from a word that means blameless, so it would be the words of this gatherer who come from the blameless. Well, that would make sense. Solomon, this collector of wisdom, the son of the King David, a man after God's own heart, you know, blameless, so to speak. Thank you. This, this is the guy that it's collecting these things that we find in chapter 30. The Vulgate has a curious translation of this that suggests the idea of someone teaching what someone else gave them. and It actually uses the, the word vomiter there, believe it or not, to suggest he's, he's pouring out these things that he's learned. Well, as you'll see in just a moment, uh, I believe a lot of what's in Proverbs are things that Solomon's mother taught him. Uh, You know, that's not a point of contention. That's just an idea a lot of people have, and I share that idea, and that would make sense. This is wisdom that he's collected under the direction of God's hand and care, through God's inspiration, some things his mom taught him, that he wants to share with others. So he's collected, and then he's put these things forth. And that brings us to book 5, which says the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. (coughs) Search high and low in Israel's history, and there's no real sense or hint of any of their kings that we know of by their ordinary names (coughs) In, in the books of the kings and the chronicles that's called Lemuel, other than Solomon, and he's not designated as such in uh, the historical records. Lemuel as a name means belonging to God, and there are a lot of in the the Jewish scholardom that believes that is also a symbolic name for Solomon, so that would mean. Solomon's mother teaching him things. And we can easily imagine Solomon's mother teaching him a lot of these proverbs as his reign descended into sensuality and excess. When you read First Kings 11, down at the tail end of Solomon's reign, he's marrying all these different wives. Many of them were foreign women who had pagan beliefs, and that was corrupting his life and corrupting his way of thinking. And as you read through proverbs... You, you think about chapter 7 where he describes the immoral woman and, and the carnal appeal she has to a man's heart. And, and then you, you read in, in chapter 31 about the value of a quality wife, that, that what that brings to the home. And it's very easy to imagine this mom who sees her son spiritually slipping, trying to teach him these things that would rein him back in. Something interesting that I've counted There are 23 instances in the book of Proverbs where he says, my son. And that's why I say it is scattered throughout these five books. That's why I say this is a mother pleading with her son. At least that's some of the source of these things. But all of their source is at the hand of God. Because in Romans 3, he said this is God committing the keeping of his words to his people. So that's the five books of Proverbs. Let's talk about literary styles. I hated the study of literature in school. Not only did I hate it, but I hated it long, I hated it deep, and I hated it hard. I just didn't like it. But I've come to learn later in life there are a lot of things they didn't talk about in school about literature that are, are not only interesting, but they're very helpful in understanding what you're reading. And in Hebrew poetry, that's certainly true in the analysis of parallelisms. And don't let that phrase frighten you, and I'm going to use some technical terminology. Don't let that concern you, because there's a simple way to view these things that, uh, that we're going to talk about here as it relates to Proverbs literary style. <clears throat> the Hebrew word for proverb means a simile or a parable. It suggests the idea of a parallelism, and a lot of proverbs is structured in a parallelism and this usually consists of two consecutive phrases with the relationship between the two phrases and what they teach just think of two parallel thoughts and that's all in the world of parallelism is now sometimes it's more than two sometimes there'll be a rapid fire series of several parallel phrases and different literary uh, analysts categorize and label those in different ways and If you go read what the scholars say about this, you'll read a lot of different terminology. I'm going to use some of the more common terminology today in discussing them. But don't worry about remembering all the technical terms. I'm just going to use a small sampling today to divide up what we're talking about. You just try to remember the idea of Proverbs using this trick of lining up phrases that are similar to help you understand something. Just think of it that way, and that will be enough to get the point. One kind of parallelism is an antithetic parallelism. That's one of those fancier words that's not a normal part of my vocabulary. All All that means is you've got two phrases put side by side that teach the same thing from opposite directions. One of them teaches it from a positive perspective and the other one teaches it from a negative perspective. And if you'll think about Proverbs, there's a lot of these in there. Proverbs 10 and verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs the days. That's one phrase. The antithesis of that or the same principle taught from the opposite perspective is, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. So as I look at that, I can understand the second phrase helps explain what the first phrase is teaching. And the first phrase helps to explain what the second phrase teaches. So here's how this helps you when you read the book of Proverbs. And you'll also find this in the Psalms. You'll also find this in the prophets. And what's exciting about this is when you take this into the major and the minor prophets, you'll find places where this parallelism really helps open up our understanding of a passage. And a deep exploration of that is way beyond the scope of our study today. Suffice to say that this is a helpful way to approach the reading of Old Testament scripture and Hebrew poetry. The way to have a more successful spiritual life is to live life in fear of God. But if you live life in sin, that, diminishes the, that tends to diminish the length and the value of your life. That's clearly what this one is teaching. There's another kind of parallelism called a synonymous. Some call it synaptic. That just basically says that the two phrases teach the same thing viewed from the same perspective. A great example of this is Proverbs 3 and 11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. This is quoted. Some of you may have recognized this. Hey, this says that in the book of Hebrews. And yes, it does. It teaches this in the book of Hebrews. It's a great lesson in life. And when we look at these parallel phrases, we can see on the one hand, he's saying, don't hate God's chastening. On the other hand, he's saying, don't detest his correction. What do we do sometimes when we face a problem in life? I hit an obstacle, maybe a, a minor or a major tragedy has happened, something that's really frustrating me, one of the things that, that we might do with that emotionally is we might stop and think, well, maybe God's mad at me, you know? So he's let my tire go flat out on the freeway and gonna make me late for work. <laughs> so he's trying to tell me something. Now we might, in a moment of clarity, understand, look, that's not how this works. And it's not. I know what a lot of people teach about that today, but that's not how God operates. But sometimes we're tempted to think of problems in life and sickness and things like that as a chastisement from God. People of God have thought that through the years. Israel thought that. The Lord's disciples thought that. Job's friends thought that. There are a lot of people that have struggled with that idea, and some would point to, don't despise the chasing Lord and say, see, don't get mad when your tire goes flat on the freeway. Just accept the Lord's trying to tell you something. And this is an instance where the parallel phrase helps, pardon the, the, the association with the flat tire, but helps pull us out of the bar ditch and correctly understand or correct a potential misunderstanding of the passage. He's not talking about a tragedy in life. He's talking about correction from God. I think the New Testament uh, quote in the King James says, nor faint when you are rebuked by him or when you are rebuked of him. The chastisement of the Lord is not my tire going flat or some problem in life. It's the correction that comes from his word. And what happens when I've got a problem spiritually and I've done something that I know I shouldn't do? Guilt starts gnawing at me and making me miserable. You ever experienced that? If you've walked with the Lord very long, I'm sure you have. And that just makes us feel awful. And he's saying, don't hate that. That has a place in your heart that can help correct you. So looking at the parallel phrases here, it's about more than just being able to identify what some literary egghead says about it. it. It's about helping us practically and properly understand the passage. Another example of this is Proverbs 29 and 18, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law happy is he. Now, this is a passage, if you're using a more modern language translation, you'll see that it probably says something like prophetic vision. And so you wouldn't struggle with correctly understanding this. But a lot of people misunderstand and misapply this. If they're reading the King James, they read that as, well, if there's no vision, that people perish. So we've got to have a vision. We've got to have a plan. And if we don't, we'll fail. Well, I believe we're supposed to have a vision, and I believe we're supposed to have a plan. And I believe there are passages and proverbs that teach that. But this is not one of them. The word that's translated vision there means prophetic vision he's saying without guidance from God, you're not going to make it. Where there is no vision, the people perish. That's the part that gets misused and misapplied. Look at the parallel phrase. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. So on the one hand, you've got people perishing, and on the other hand, you've got people being successful or being happy. On the one hand, you've got a lack of prophetic vision. On the other hand, you've got keeping the law. So in the parallelism, the words, the law, parallel the idea of vision, and that gives you insight. This is not about my vision and my plan. This is about God's direction. And so using that parallel structure helps explain correctly what the proverb is about. And there are a lot more examples like that where understanding the idea of parallelism helps us correctly read and apply the passage. There's something called an emblematic parallelism. And all that is is just where he uses something to symbolize the truth that he's teaching. Proverbs 25 and 12, Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. So the idea of someone uh, being rebuked there in their ear, you're hearing someone say something corrective, what's that like? Well, that's like fine jewelry. So in our culture, the ladies will wear nice jewelry on the ear. Maybe that's made of gold if if her husband's done well enough this last Valentine's Day that he could get her something that's gold. And so what does that do? That shines. That looks beautiful. You know, the ladies will put it in their little jewelry cleaner and polish it up and make it look nice. And and then they wear that and it's just just decorated and, and it looks pretty. It looks pleasing to the eyes. And God is saying, that's how I see it when you listen to corrective teaching. Well, what's my gut level reaction to corrective teaching? Look, y'all all may be a room full of spiritual superheroes, but your preacher this week is not. Sometimes my gut level reaction is, yeah, that's right. But a lot of times my gut reaction is, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, ain't, that can't be right because if that's right, that means I'm wrong. And we know that's not on the table. And so I start to struggle. No, it's not on the table. It is the table. God's right and we're wrong. And we're in a long journey to get over that. And this is saying it's beautiful in the sight of God. Fellows, the way you enjoy seeing your wife fixed up and with the nice jewelry on, the way you enjoy that, that's how God enjoys seeing us saying, you know what, I'm going to listen because there may be something here I can learn. You see the power of that emblematic parallelism. There's another literary device that's used in Old Testament Scripture that's also used in the book of Proverbs. It's just in there, I think, maybe three or four times. One of the, uh, the most common, I guess, examples of that is Proverbs 6. These six things does the, uh, the Lord hates, yea, seven, are an abomination to him. And then he goes on and lists seven things. So he said, he didn't just say, God really hates these seven things. He said, God hates these six things, Yea, seven. That's used a a, a time or two else outside the book of Proverbs. And it's used a time or two besides this passage within the book of Proverbs. The number climax as a literary device in, in the Hebrew culture was not intended to say, okay, this is an exhaustive list of everything that God hates. And if you're outside these set of seven items, then you're good. Because <laughs> there are things that are an abomination to God that aren't listed here. The point is not to list an exhaustive list that this, this is the whole thing right here. The point is to give a representative list of things that tend to result in the last thing. And the last thing is the real point of emphasis. And if you'll think about it, a proud look, a lying tongue, shedding innocent blood, devising wicked plans, swiftly running to mischief or evil, and being a false witness, those are things that tend to produce sowing discord. And the wording of the six, yea, seven, emphasizes that last item on the list, that's the real problem in the sight of God, is creating things that fragment God's children, that creates division between God's children. He really hates that. And he doesn't want us to do that. So understanding that literary device, I can read that passage and recognize God is really helping me understand things I need to avoid so that I don't become that guy that creates trouble between other people. Because that really, really matters to God. Another thing that's a literary device in the book of of Proverbs that's uh, elsewhere used in Scripture is something called an acrostic. We think of an acrostic as, you know, where you put down a word, and then each letter of that word will spell out a word or a phrase, and that's related words or phrases. The way the Hebrews did it was just with the Hebrew alphabet. Psalms 119 is arranged this way, and if you'll look, most of your Bibles will have little headings that say the Hebrew alphabet character, and that's what that's about. As far as there being any special meaning associated with this, I don't know of one other than it helped people to memorize stuff. It created a structure where people could memorize. There are other chapters in the Psalms that are arranged in a partial acrostic or a full acrostic. Proverbs 31, all the things there that said about the virtuous wife and her worth is far above rubies, that's arranged in the Hebrew in an acrostic. So just as kind of a point of academics there, That points to something about Proverbs that I think helps us appreciate. This book is not just a book of wisdom, it's an absolute work of art. And as as much as I'm not into the technical study of literature, the more I've studied literature in the scripture, the more I realize that the scripture is a special book that rises far above any other book produced by man. You know, when I was younger, I would read Proverbs and feel some of this structure that we're talking about, and I had no idea it was there. I just thought, there's just kind of a rhythm to this. And it's a lot of these literary devices that give it that special rhythm and that special feel. I, I don't know if you've done much of this, but I've read a lot of other, you know, supposed ancient wisdom from these ancient civilizations like the ancient Hebrew civilization. I've read, for example, the writings of Confucius a lot of secularists directed us that way, saying, that's, that's better than anything in the Bible. No, it's not. I'm not saying it's terrible advice. It's decent advice. But it's nowhere near the caliber of the artistic power and absolute beauty of Scripture and of the book of Proverbs. And I'll tell you, the more you study Proverbs and the better you recognize these things and help use them to help you better understand what it's teaching, the more that will open up the reading of the of the major and minor prophets in the Old Testament. It might take a lot of time to get to that point, but I'll tell you it really helps because they all use these things. Now let's talk about the heart of Proverbs and subsequently the heart of this meeting. What this meeting is really about. Proverbs 1 and verse 2 tells us what the purpose of the book is. To know wisdom and instruction. To receive the words of understanding. These stated books purpose of the book of Proverbs is to impart wisdom to us. Now, when you look at the word wisdom and the word knowledge in scripture, sometimes the words are used interchangeably. But sometimes they're used in a way where there appears to be an intended distinction between the two terms. And I've given study and consideration of that. A lot of others have. I'm just going to offer you my conclusion about the distinction. Knowledge is knowing the facts, and wisdom has to do with the ability to relate those facts to your daily life and make practical application of them. Now, some passages where you see those words, you're going to see, well, they're more or less interchangeable, but there'll be places where you look and you'll see that distinction. It's, it's, it's great to have a pile of facts, but those facts don't have much meaning until I'm able to take them and plug them in that tough time I'm having next Thursday when I'm facing that temptation or that difficulty or facing that choice I've got to make, and I'm going to make a decision. So knowing how to use all this information to make that decision, that's wisdom. It's based on that that our mom, when we were growing up, encouraged us, every chapter you read in the New Testament, read a chapter in Proverbs. A few years ago, I put together a reading plan. You know, there are a lot of those out there that, that timed it where you could read the New Testament, through and the book of Proverbs through several times by the time you finish reading the New Testament. She always said if you'll do that with Proverbs, it will help you understand what you're reading in the New Testament. It took a few trips for me to see that, a few trips back through. But here's what began to click. God said, look people, I gave you this book to give you wisdom. Okay, Look people, wisdom helps you apply knowledge. Okay? So you read through the New Testament you get all this knowledge and the wisdom of Proverbs helps you plug that in in your daily life. That was the idea. The longer I live, the more I read, the more I think the old girl is right. And so I would really recommend that you consider reading Proverbs alongside your reading of the New Testament. Whatever other Bible reading plan you do, consider that. Proverbs 4 and 7, relatively early in the book, says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. You see the parallelism? Some of you see that. I'm always reading through that. He's equating wisdom and understanding. Who doesn't want to understand the word? So what did he say do? It's the principal thing. Wisdom is the principal thing. I want to tell you, I believe and you will see this in our study, especially this afternoon, I believe that wisdom is Christ idealized in life instructions. When you think of applying wisdom to your life, you're relating Christ to your life. And as I say, the more we go in our studies, the more you'll see that. So no wonder it's the principal thing. It's because he is the principal thing. And the more I relate with wisdom and relate wisdom to the choices that I make, the more through Christ I'm relating with God and God is relating with me. Again, I'm introducing that now to to discuss the idea of that being the heart of Proverbs. By the end of this afternoon's study, I hope it will be more evident to you why I believe that to be the case. But that introduces us to the idea. Proverbs talks a good bit about the immoral woman. I guess just about the whole seventh chapter is devoted to the immoral woman and the discussion of her. But there are other places in the book of Proverbs that talks about her. It's all in that first book, chapters 1 through 9. She's not mentioned later. But uh, look at what it says about her in Proverbs 7 and 26. For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. When you read the description of the immoral woman, It sounds more more or less like he's talking about a prostitute, and and that seems to be the case. But I want to suggest to you that the immoral woman of Proverbs 7 and other places in Proverbs uh, confronts us in a number of ways in modern life. She might be a character in a magazine or on a movie or a video or online. Okay, Be mindful of that, fellows, when you're browsing. Or she might be someone in your mind. Or she might be your twisted view of a godly woman. And in the corruptness of your thoughts, you distort this godly woman into what you perceive to be that woman. Think about that. And when, what does he say about that? She brought down a lot of stout fellows. She brought down a really lot of strong men who handle other weaknesses in life really well, but they got to this weakness and they faltered. Well, I believe more and more that this immoral woman comes to represent all manner of folly in life, as is represented in the book of Proverbs, because she's juxtapositioned against the wisdom woman. She's laid alongside in comparison with the wisdom woman. In Proverbs 7, you have a detailed descri- description. I forgot to iron my tongue this morning. You have a detailed description of this immoral woman, this temptress who uh, verbally casts out her invitation for men to come and follow her ways all the way to the point of him being destroyed. In the very next chapter, He portrays to us another woman who also calls out from the street corner. And that's wisdom personified as a woman. Proverbs 8, look at verse 1 through 4. Does not wisdom cry out? Right after talking about how the immoral woman cries out from her street corner, he said, does not wisdom cry out? And understanding lift up her voice? (coughs) She takes her stand on the top of a high hill. Beside the way where the paths meet, she cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors, to you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. The same guys that are unfortunately listening to that immoral woman, he's saying, come on, fellas, listen to this lady instead. And he proceeds to describe her. Look at the comparison between the immoral woman and the wisdom woman. I would encourage you later at your leisure to read Proverbs 7 and Proverbs 8 and see this. I'm just going to bullet reference it. They both call from the street. The appeal of the immoral woman is empty flattery, whereas the wise woman, she'll tell you the hard truth that you need to know. The immoral woman speaks sinfully. The wise woman speaks right, righteously. He instructs us to avoid the immoral woman, but he encourages us to receive the wisdom woman. The, the immoral woman reduces a man to the, to the conduct and character of a dumb brute, a witless animal. But the wise woman brings a man to greater wisdom and knowledge. The immoral woman has cast down many, but the wise woman builds up many. The immoral woman causes poverty in the book of Proverbs chapter 6, but in Proverbs 8, she, the wise woman brings prosperity. So in every way, wisdom personified as a woman elevates man above the folly of pursuing carnal appetites. And from that standpoint, we can generalize the lesson about a immoral woman to reach beyond her appeal to man and understand she represents just chasing physical senses in life in a way that would destroy man or woman. So she represents folly, and the vices that come from folly. But the wise woman represents wisdom and virtues that come from wisdom. At every turn in Proverbs 7, you see vices, you see sin that follows pursuing this ungodly woman. And at every turn in Proverbs 8, you see virtues that grow from the pursuit of this wise woman. So it's an interesting parallel. If you want to do something later in your own study... Take the virtuous wife of Proverbs 31 and put her alongside this chart and see how well she fits. It fits pretty good. So now, now think of, of mom trying to get Solomon to see this as he's marrying off all these different pagan women. Son, can't you see where this is taking you? It led him down to his destruction, didn't it? Think about that. Think about our life and making wise choices. So the heart of Proverbs, it's all about learning and understanding wisdom that will help us make better choices that will bring us spiritual success on the side of God. So you've got trouble. You've got sin and you need a Savior. You've got sinful habits and desires and you need guidance. How are you going to cleanse Your way. How are you going to flee from those things that would destroy your life and your soul? Well, the answer is simple. Jesus Christ. He is that way. And not just Him as the person and the salvation that He brings to remedy us of our guilt of sin and give us hope beyond the grave, but of the instruction He brings to pull us out, the instruction He brings to pull us out of the destructive habits of folly and the vices that follow. And so in that way, Proverbs is really pointing us to Christ. And as you contemplate that today, and you think about where you're at spiritually before God, I want to ask you to consider your need for Christ. If you're not yet a Christian, how are you going to cleanse your way? By taking heed to the Word of God and coming to Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, but you're not living faithful, think about fashioning your life according to the course of wisdom. Listen to that wise woman call. And if you need the church's prayers to assist you in that, we would love to help you. Or if you need the church's aid in obeying the gospel, we would love to help you in that way. If we can help you in either way, please come. Have a seat on the front while we stand and while we sing.